If you have spent much of the winter inside, you're not alone. And, as for all of us, it is high time to get outside again. The temperatures are warming, a big spring cleaning may be around the corner, and with it, we allow the energy of the natural environment to re-enter our lives. What does that really mean, and how important is it? Just how much does the outside world really affect us? Today, we'll find out as we are looking at your brain on nature. How our environment becomes us. That's our topic here today in this hour of An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. An organic conversation is all about nature, the nature on our plates in form of organic food, and nature inside of us through shows on listening and beauty and holistic healing, and the nature that surrounds us, hopefully. We've had a couple of recent episodes on outdoor schools for kids and nature deficit disorder, that's when we don't get enough time in a natural setting, among many other topics. We are following up on this topic today with new research done by Dr. David Strayer, a professor of cognition and neural science, who will speak with us about just how much our environment becomes us. That's our focus, and that's also the title of today's episode here on An Organic Conversation, Your Brain on Nature, How Our Environment Becomes Us. All that and more coming up in just a minute. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by... Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot CO. Coming up is your brain on nature, how our environment becomes us. That and more today on an organic conversation. Stay tuned. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour is our brain on nature, how our environment becomes us. New research is being done, in this case, by Dr. David Strayer, PhD, Professor of Cognition and Neural Science at the University of Utah. He's joining us today from Salt Lake City. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making time and all your fascinating work you are a cognitive psychologist uh, who specializes in attention. 
Can you explain what that looks like? What are you studying? How are you studying it in your daily work? Attention's been a cornerstone of, of psychology for over 100 years. It's kind of associated with uh, selectively processing some information and ignoring others. And today's uh, uh, environment, a lot of times it's associated with multitasking, trying to do one or more things at the same time. And, you know, the work that I do a lot of is one of the more common ways that we multitask, which is driving and uh, interacting with all kinds of technology that's on your smartphone. And for me, it's uh, uh, an interesting way to study the limits of uh, human attention and the various ways in which our brain uh, allows us to be able to try and multitask. And the literature is quite clear uh, that we don't do it very well, and consequently we see a large number of injuries and crashes and fatalities because of the limits, really, of human attention. We want to get into the, the, the consequences of that in a few minutes, but since you're bringing it up already, I read in your article, Your Brain on Nature in National Geographic, that being on a cell phone while driving is the equivalent of being drunk, basically. To what degree, how much alcohol would that be the equivalent of? So the estimates suggest that when you're talking on a, a cell phone, your crash risk is the same as if you were driving uh, at the legal limit, 0.08 in terms of blood alcohol. If you're texting or doing other kinds of things where your eyes are off the road, the crash risk is even higher, maybe twice that for someone who's texting. That's absolutely significant and interesting that that has not created more. I mean, there is a law that you're not allowed to, but I don't think that awareness has really been publicized that it's, you know, it could be up to 1.6. That's what you're saying, right? Percent alcohol Yeah, the crash percent. risk is twice the, what you see for the, for the legal limit. It's, it's really dangerous. And, um, we see that there's lots of states in the United States that outlaw texting. But we also see, and it's pretty common if you're driving down the road, that people are doing it pretty regularly. Statistically, that's a really uh, dangerous activity to do. And uh, if you're driving next to someone who's texting, just think about the fact that they're actually more impaired than if they were drunk. Yes. How did you get interested in studying this? What about nature fascinated you? Or where did you in your personal life or professional life feel like, wow, maybe nature is the antidote? And wouldn't that be interesting? What was the point where you turned to that? I think, uh, realistically, the, the the way was just going out uh, into the desert. So I live in Salt Lake City. And so we have some amazing uh, national parks and, and deserts in the state, just going out there for, for long periods of time, and realizing that I started to think differently, more clearly, I noticed all kinds of details that were originally kind of things I hadn't noticed. I, I could smell smells and hear sounds and just recalibrate. And so just my initially anecdotal experiences of being in the desert and being in nature let me think that there's something really profound going on. And of course, nature writers have been writing about this for uh, well over 200 years. So it's not like I discovered something that other people didn't know, but it just became really obvious that something's happening in our brains. And, and so that kind of led me on the quest. And you are now, yes, it's it's true, nature writing maybe even goes back further than hundreds of years. But in the last couple hundred years, the element of nature with the onset of technology, or even the industrial age, that early on city living uh, has become a more profound counterpart or antidote. Now you're bringing groups into nature, right? You're really studying it with yes. electronic equipment to really measure and prove that that's happening. In your article, you're talking about the three-day effect and happy, healthier, and smarter living. Can you explain what you did? What has your research included so far? Yeah, so just in part of my own experiences, I noticed that there was an almost immediate effect of going out into nature, but that it seemed to continue to keep growing. Though after about two or three days, things started to click in and be kind of, that was when you really got that, that profound effect of, oh, I'm really here and I'm disconnected from the digital modern world. And so I've been taking groups out for the last 15 years or thereabouts into, uh, into the desert. They have to typically unplug because thankfully we don't have electronic technology everywhere we go. You can go into the deserts, the sky is amazing, you're interacting in a natural environment. And what we again found was that a lot of people had that, that profound experience 
And then we started to uh, use kind of the, the toolbox that comes with cognitive neuroscience, uh, my specialty, to try and understand something about what's happening in, inside the brain. And among other things, we find that, for example, problem solving gets better, so we actually can solve problems better. Our decision-making is better. Creativity, we've done given people creativity tests, and we see a big boost in terms of uh, creativity. Uh, we also see a lot of important affective effects, so people feel less stressed, and so you can see that in terms of cortisol levels and also just behavioral reports. People report positive affect. They feel better. Um, and uh, higher levels of uh, well-being. Um, so we see that there's a, a large uh, constellation of things that uh, we've known and could, you could infer from uh, some of the writings over the last couple hundred years. But being a neuroscientist, I it was interested in what's going on inside the head. <laughs> and so what we've done in the last four or five years is start to record activity from the brain, EEG, and look to see if we can find biomarkers or neural signatures that are associated with that effect of being in nature. And what have you found? So we really found some striking differences. I mean, the, the difference between someone who's uh, kind of plugged into the modern multitasking world versus someone who's hiking around in the desert, or it doesn't have to be the desert, any place in nature, even, even parks within a city, we start to see that there are changes in the, the different aspects of the brain What we know, for example, is that there are different attentional networks. One attentional network that tends to be associated with parietal cortex is associated with orienting. If you hear a noise, you kind of attend and alert kind of this orienting response to what that noise is, a horn, you know, a, a twig snapping or something like that. That's the orienting attentional network. There's a, another network, brain network, and they're separate networks, and you can kind of just, in, in neural imaging, you can actually start to see them operating separately that's associated with the prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain. That's the decision-making, planning, creative, problem-solving aspect of the brain. And that's the area that also gets co-opted by our multitasking and you know, frenzy that we have in the modern world with emails and text messages and driving and so forth. And the third network is something called the default network. It's associated with, as a, it's not a particularly great name, but uh, it's associated with... Uh, mind-wandering, meditation, being kind of more in the moment. And so what we found in the brain activity is that frontal attentional network, the concentrating, decision-making, planning part of the brain, starts to become more quiet, and this kind of uh, default attentional network that's associated with meditating and kind of being in the moment becomes uh, more activated. And so what we are finding is that uh, there are distinct attentional networks or neural brain regions in our brain that are responsible or responsive to being kind of in a heavy multitasking environment and overstimulating the prefrontal cortex or being in a natural environment and letting those prefrontal brain regions relax and, re and be restored and that the default mode kind of upregulates and you get that kind of in the moment kind of experience. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and my guest today is Dr. David Strayer, PhD Professor of Cognition and Neural Science at the University of Utah. Salt Lake City is the place he's calling us from in this episode of Your Brain on Nature, How Our Environment Becomes Us. So you were able to prove, literally in an EKG or EEG, to, to, to show, you can see it, you can see the effect Of nature on our brains? Yeah. I mean, we were really excited about that, to be <laughs> honest, because the fact That's you could amazing. actually um, show that there are systematic changes in the way our brain's reacting and the, and the EEG or the neural signatures in your brain that are linked to the kind of environment you're in, a natural environment or kind of a modern uh, multitasking environment, helps to really provide some solid credence to this notion that going out into nature can be good and restorative. There's plenty of anecdotal evidence and starting to be some, and plenty of, of now behavioral evidence, but to be able to tie it to different brain networks uh, and show that these restorative effects are associated with kind of just relaxing that important prefrontal cortex so that later on, if you have to think creatively, you can now use that part of the brain because you've rested it. It's kind of like the metaphor is like a muscle. And so the attention restoration theory 
that was developed by uh, the Kaplans suggests that if you overwork a muscle, it starts to become fatigued, let it rest for a little bit, and you'll be able to kind of lift again because you've restored or replenished uh, those resources in the muscle. We're thinking about, in this case, the, the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex that's associated with higher-order thinking, has a chance to rest as we're walking around in nature, and it just creates sharper, clearer thoughts, better problem-solving, and so forth. The metaphor basically is we've overused the, <coughs> the resources uh, in the brain, probably associated with some of the energy like glucose and mm-hmm. the, those supplies that are actually the engine of the brain. And if you let that portion of the brain relax and rest for a little bit, uh, you're going to get, when it now has to be uh, used again, you're going to be able to think more clearly because it's just been re- rested and relaxed. You see the same kinds of benefits to a smaller extent when sleeping, but there's something special about being in nature that kind of really amps up that benefit. As fascinating and amazing it is, it is also pretty scary, right, that the impact on nature, or in this case, the opposite, the impact on modern day life, our devices, driving technology, everything that is not nature, that stresses or occupies the brain to to an extent and 24-7, that is unlike what's happening in nature, that that shows that you can actually make it visible also shows how much impact it has. I think it's hard to overstate what you just said. The digital technology that we carry with us most often in the form of a, of a smartphone, but also TVs and computers and, and uh, uh, cars and those other kind of things, the technology that we surround ourselves with tends to be depleting our mental resources. We are kind of at the beck and call of our smartphone. If it rings, if a Facebook post comes in, if, if a, a text message comes in, we feel compelled to look at it. And constantly switching attention back and forth just places heavy demands. The multitasking center of the brain is that same prefrontal cortex. And so you find that, uh, that you find that basically just multitasking tends to deplete those resources. With the smartphone in particular, uh, we think it's a bit game-changing because in the sense that because uh, it ties into your social network, it ties into your friends and, and colleagues who maybe reaching out in terms of texting you or Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram or the zillions of other apps that are available, that's part of your social network. And when it, that phone rings, uh, we're compelled to respond to it. it. It triggers the release of dopamine. It's a, it's a kind of a rewarding neurotransmitter that makes us try and repeat that behavior. And so uh, we're seeing that uh, the, we in some cases are becoming addicted, if not compulsively attached to our, to our devices, and we carry them with us all the time. And one of the things that's a little scary is you start to see people who carry their phones on the walk when they're going into nature. And what we've been able to show is that if you're using your digital technology on the walk, in terms of the mental uh, restorative benefits, you almost negate those. So picking up the phone and talking while you're walking kind of just about uh, eliminates all the cognitive benefits uh, that you would have got had you just unplugged and taken that same walk. So if I, <laughs> if I can distill that in what I'm hearing is, so uh, our technology, at least at least cell phones, because we all of us have them with us at all times, it's addictive. And as the phones get smarter, we get dumber. Is that kind of the summary of what yeah, you just said? Yeah, I mean, said? Uh, certainly in terms of uh, our ability to be able to be really sharp and nimble and good at problem solving and creative, uh, excessive the use of your smartphone will make us less so. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, technology is horrible or anything like that. It's just that we need to have uh, be wise about how we use it. And right now, most people are just indiscriminate. They'll pick up the phone whenever they and whenever it rings. Sure. Uh, that could be while driving. It could be on a date when you're interacting with somebody else or in the movie theater. Uh, and unfortunately, we're seeing people pick up the phone and use it when they're uh, when they're out in nature. I, I came across a a woman uh, when I was hiking in uh, Archers National Park about a year or two ago, and uh, she had her back to the this amazing arch. She was on the phone. She was trading stocks. She might as well have not even been in the park because she was so kind of in that digital bubble that uh, she even had her back turned to uh, some of the most amazing uh, natural scenes in uh, in Utah. Yes. How 
our brain uh, is affected by nature or our brain on nature, how our environment becomes us. We're speaking with Dr. David Strayer, PhD, Professor of Cognition and Neural Science at the University of Utah in this hour here on Anagani Conversation. Dr. Strayer, stay with us. We'll take a quick break to honor our underwriters and we'll be right back with more. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Your brain on nature, how our environment becomes us. That's our focus in this hour. Here in the show and this week, we are speaking with Dr. David Strayer, PhD, Professor of Cognition and Neural Science at the University of Utah, who's joining us today from Salt Lake City. Dr. Strayer, before the break, you spoke of a woman who was in nature on her phone trading stocks, and you're saying science has shown, your research has shown, that the effect of being outside in nature, all the positive effects while we're on the phone are basically canceled out. We might as well not be. Uh, maybe there's some oxygen that we get through fresher air, uh, but all the, the relaxing benefits of being in nature that we otherwise would receive If technology makes it with us into nature, we are basically at a net zero. Or worse, yeah. I mean, clearly there are going to be some physiological benefits of taking a walk, uh, even if you're plugged in. But in terms of the restorative parts about actually thinking better and more clearly and getting your kind of brain to focus, you pick up the phone while you're on a walk and you don't notice the walk. And you have largely negated a lot of the benefits of being out in nature. Uh, and in some cases, if you're really involved in some conversation, you may actually show that that conversation has completely overwhelmed any potential benefits whatsoever of being outside, at least from a, the mental uh, restorative aspects associated with nature. So nature wants to be a part of our lives, or we really need it. We are part of nature. We are nature. There is a study mentioned in your article that living within a block away from trees, even from just like a little neighborhood park, increases one's health compared to a $20,000 increase in salary. So it, we're not just talking camping really away from civilization, but even spending a few hours, you have the three-day effect, but even a few hours, if it's a regular part of our days or lives, uh, what effect are you seeing? So the um, 
the research on that's actually really quite compelling. Uh, as you mentioned in the National Geographic article, researchers have been able to quantify the benefits of being close to nature, close to nature, close to a, a park, an arboretum. Uh, you don't have to go out on some kind of extensive three- or four-day hike. Great if you can, but many of us can't. But if you can get out into a park, uh, wander around uh, on a hike, leaving technology aside, you get these major benefits in terms of just health, in terms of stress. We see some studies that have, done, have looked at how quickly people recover in the hospital following some kind of surgical event. People who have access to a window that can look out into nature have shortened stays in the hospital. Just being able to look out and see green space or being in natural environments is very much healthy. There's a reason that we all fight for office space with windows. I mean, those windows are cold. Well, you know, why wouldn't it be better to have a, a, a window, that, a room that's uh, just all no windows because it's going to be warmer and so forth? But no, we want, we want uh, offices that actually give some kind of view of the outdoors. Our, our evolutionary history has always been connected to outdoors. And when we live in uh, environments with, uh, you know, the, the built environments of modern technology, if we don't have windows, we feel closed in and uh, when we plug into technology 24-7, we just kind of dim down our senses of the world uh, because we're just constantly multitasking. Yeah, fascinating. I just had a conversation with a friend last weekend and we were saying, uh, interesting how from fireplace to hardwood floor to kind of what was the ideal apartment when we were 20 or 25 to what it is now. And the most important aspect now we both found is v having a view. And that's what you're saying, right? Even even when you're not directly in nature or hiking or camping overnight, that view part uh, has already... Have you measured that? Have you seen measurable cognitive changes by just having a, enjoying a view in your work? It's not so much my work that's looked at that, but clearly a number of other researchers who are in this, doing this, studying the same phenomena have shown substantial benefits from being able to look outdoors in windows, being able to walk uh, in green spaces, being able to be close to green space. The access to nature is, seems to be really important. And again, it's, it's, it goes back to, um, you know, our hunter-gatherer uh, time. Sure. We're just not that far removed from when nature was all around us. And now we've created these you know, urban environments. More than half the people in the United States now live in cities. So we're seeing a very big change in our environment, and that has a profound impact on our brain and how we think. What's the most surprising in your work, or what study have you found the most surprising incident or, or study, or what is the overall most surprising part of what you're looking at? You know, I think actually uh, you, you don't realize how profound these effects are. I will say that just as an example, the st study that shows that people recover quick, more quickly with windows. Uh, in a hospital. You see that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the wall coverings in prisons actually have an effect in terms of overall violence and things like that in the prisons. You see overall just feelings of well-being, reduced uh, health care costs, and overall better quality of living when people are closer to nature. Those things, I think, are actually pretty profound. And, and then for, for me, I was really trying interested in trying to say, is this just something where I, I think I should feel good, so therefore I feel good? Uh, or can we actually find some biological markers, biomarkers, For me, some of the measures like stress, where you can take measure uh, uh, saliva and get uh, estimates of uh, how much cortisol is in the system and show that people become less stressed mm -hmm. in their environment. You see changes in heart rate and yeah. blood pressure. Those are things that are clearly associated with positive health outcomes and being in natural environments. And now some of the work we're doing where we can actually measure brain activity and show that uh, we can link those positive and you know, subjective feelings of well-being to changes in the body. That seems to me, to, I think, to be one of the more uh, exciting trends uh, in the field these days. So when we compare that to overall lifestyles, right, it's almost like the diet, the nature on your plate, the food you eat, the more junk food you eat, the more you crave it, but you also get malnourished over time you know, nature on your plate and, and nature as an environment, with that much impact of city life and technology and half of the U.S. population now living in cities, what are you predicting in the future as our technology 
will only increase. I think that's a fair statement. And our phones, again, will only get smarter. And we are spending less and less time in nature. I just saw another study that the average U.S. child, only 10% of children in the U.S. actually every day go out to nature to some degree. That means 90% stay inside. Uh, what is what is the warning here? You know, to some extent, we don't know the answers completely to that. So it's, it's a big research question. There have been a number of uh, panels established by the National Academy of Science to look at these issues. Generally speaking, while we have, we have more concerns and we have hard facts, but uh, everything you just mentioned about spending less time in nature, spending more time plugged in to digital environments, less time interacting with other people, those things are uh, predictive of negative physical and mental health uh, later in life. And we notice that as technology has advanced and crept into our lives more and more, that uh, the number of mental health issues has grown you know, proportionally. So these technology, technological advances that we typically surround ourselves with aren't necessarily making us happier or healthier. And I think from my perspective, I think one of the things to do is to not divorce yourself from the technology because as you just alluded to, it's almost impossible to do that but instead to be a smart consumer. And that is realize that we shouldn't necessarily reflexively always reach for our phone in all circumstances. Maybe in the house, we have some areas of the house where we can be digitally free. Uh, maybe when we go on hikes, we put this phone and all that digital technology in our backpack if we feel the need to have it with us for some emergency, but we're not tethered to it. If we're smart consumers, and we take control of technology, then we can make our lives better. But if we're not smart consumers and we're constantly just being at the whim of whatever happens in terms of any text or email or Facebook post or whatever as it comes in, we're going to be basically a slave to that technology and it's not going to make us healthier or happier. So what would a brain that never gets a break do? You touched on mental health issues later in life, but later in life, it doesn't mean that they show up at 70, right? If you no. start this with 20, like what, what is, what's the progression here? So uh, one example is uh, some work that uh, the late Cliff Nass from Stanford did where he looked at tweens, girls particularly, who were uh, showing more and more interactions uh, with their peers digitally. Those are kind of shallow interactions versus face-to-face -face interactions. Mm -hmm. And what happened was the profile that he was detecting in, in the tweens was predictive of depression for women in their 30s and 40s. These, again, are correlational studies, but I think the concern is that if we don't make real friends and instead we're just having Facebook friends, those aren't the same thing. And especially later on when we need a social support group and we want to be able to kind of mm -hmm. uh, share empathy uh, in a variety of ways, Those things are just not available to us. Cliff Nass suggested that a, a lot of our pro-social behaviors are learned and that if we don't practice them, we won't know how to use them or we might not ever be uh, very effective at, at kind of engaging in those kinds of behaviors. Uh, we may become a little bit less empathetic uh, and it puts us at risk for a variety of kinds of depression and other kinds of mental health issues that are associated with dysregulation of attention. Uh, so at the very beginning you ask attention, And what is attention? If you look at the Diagnostic Service Manual, it's the clinical manual that uh, looks at a lot of disorders, mm -hmm. probably 30 to 40 percent of those are associated with attention not working properly. Maybe I pay too much attention, not enough attention, I can't switch attention, or, or various dysregul dysregulation of the attentional networks. And so when we're using these smartphones, we're playing with uh, those attentional networks in ways that may have long-term negative consequences. Again, we don't know for sure because, you know, you got to do the, the studies sure. actually, you know, the, the digital technology we're surrounding ourselves with is relatively new. The, the uh, iPhone came out in 2007, so all that kind of wonderful technology we have at our fingertips is relatively new. Its effects on us uh, as, a, as an individual and as a society are still a little bit understudied. But the concerns are that, you know, uh, nature is a good antidote to excessive technology use. And if nothing else, be smart, go on a hike, leave the phone in your backpack, and you're going to be better off for it. So ADD, anxiety, depression, all those things seem to be at least correlatedly related? Correct. 
correct. And so, I mean, that's actually one of the, the one of the concerns in these uh, uh, panels that the National Academy of Science formed is like, what are the long-term consequences, mm-hmm. especially of kids yeah. who are plugged in at earlier and earlier ages? I mean, they make they make a, a bassinet that holds an iPad. So we're seeing kids in the three-month age starting to actually be plugged into technology. Um, that's radically different than how we were raised. And I think most social scientists would say that has potential to be have some negative consequences. And there certainly could be some positive as well. But we should be careful and tread a little lightly on constantly immersing ourselves 24-7 in this digital world, especially when there's all these uh, natural environments that are we, we know are healthy for us. Uh, and those studies actually have borne out time and time again. And we have you know, 200-plus uh, years of people writing about the wonderful benefits of going out into nature. Sure. Yes, we're speaking with Dr. David Strayer, PhD Professor of Cognition and Neural Science from the University of Utah, who's joining us in this hour of an organic conversation on your brain, on nature, how our environment becomes us. We are almost out of time, but I do want, uh, would love for you to describe a day or a week or weekend. It seems silly almost, because if you say just spend some time without your devices outside, but how would you best integrate a somewhat balanced lifestyle into this world of technology? If somebody listens to this and they live in the city and they, um, they of course, are completely emerged in technology pretty much 24-7, Uh, what would be some easy tips and what durations are we talking about? We heard now from looking out the window to camping for a weekend, but what it, what is a healthy balance that you would feel uh, is at least some counterpart to a fully technologized day? Mm-hmm. So I would think about this in terms of a diet. Well, yeah, how much of great. your diet should be nature and how much of your diet should be digital technology and realizing that you can't have 100% of either. But I think most people would be a little surprised at how often they reach for the phone. Uh, the average person in the United States reaches for their phone between 130 and 150 times a day, which is a, a surprising amount. So, I mean, maybe the thing to do to start with is to just, you know, count the number of times you really look at your phone and then ask, is that actually healthy? Couple that with uh, thinking about some periods of time. How often do you go out on a hike just to begin with, just forgetting about whether or not you have uh, technology at your fingertips? And you'll find that a lot of people just, you know, they don't, maybe they'll go to the gym or maybe they won't even go outside at all. So I would say, you know, try and have some balance. And if you're not getting, if you count the number of times you go out uh, on a hike, just a short hike in, the, in, on, in a park, on a trail, someplace where you can get out for a little bit and uh, take a look at those ratios. And if you have zero times that you're going out hiking and uh, 150 times a day that you're uh, on the phone, maybe you think about want to recalibrate that a little bit. Choose some places where you can deliberately go out on a hike on a regular basis. Put the phone down. Try and drop down the number of digital interactions you have and increase the number of uh, interactions in nature until you find some kind of a balance. And see if, in fact, you don't notice for yourself that you start to think more clearly, sleep better, and just overall have a higher level of well-being because that's what the data says when we've actually done studies is people report a lot of both physical and mental health benefits from uh, unplugging and, and it, taking a hike. It's fascinating how quickly it goes, right? I, I went for a, a walk in preparation of this show and I left my phone at home, which for the first 10 minutes or even just in the moment of doing it felt really weird. It's almost being naked. I think our technology has become such a place, an armor, a connection device that it's yeah it's it's clearly has addictive qualities to it uh, so i i left it at home it felt weird and by the time i was done with my walk which was literally just 40 minutes or so without my phone i felt better than noticeably better than having walked the same exact walk with my phone the day before so it's interesting how quickly you can how hard it is to unhook from devices and how quickly you can feel the benefit of of just leaving it behind, maybe not even in your backpack. And yes, as a security device, I get it. But just for your city stroll through some city park, instantly it felt more freeing almost. Absolutely. And don't underestimate the kind of the power of those rewarding uh, signals. I mean, we talk about behavioral addiction, but it's the same dopaminergic 
reward circuits that are associated with addicted gambling. When your phone goes off, you got to look at it. And so it's, you know, what I'm suggesting is cut the number of uh, digital interactions and increase the number of nature interactions. And I fully realize that now that may take, you know, locking your phone in the, in the, in the car, putting it in the backpack on vibrate so you can't hear it while you're walking because I guarantee that if you're on a hike and you hear your phone, you know, vibrate or ring. You want to know what it is, yeah. You want to know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating, wonderful, great reminder. And um, I hope you will continue this work and this research and we'll have you back soon. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Dr. David Strayer, PhD, Professor of Cognition and Neural Science from the University of Utah. Um, Dr. Strayer, if somebody wants to learn more, where can they find more information on your work? Um, well, there's a book that just came out called The Nature Fix uh, that was written by Florence Williams, and uh, it sh that's following up the National Geographic article. Mm -hmm. And she actually has followed a number of researchers across the world uh, who are looking at this very topic, and she's done a pretty good job of summarizing what that literature is, and I would highly recommend uh, that as at least one book. There's probably three or four others that'd be really quite good, but that one's uh, just released and uh, really has a lot of... Uh, insights in terms of what modern research is telling us about going out into nature. Can you tell us the title again, The Nature Fix? It's The Nature Fix by Florence Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. Great. And then your website, do you publish articles and findings there as well? I do. Uh, probably the best thing to do, they can actually just search for uh, uh, the University of Utah and uh, David Strayer, S-T-R-A-Y-E-R, -E and they'll be able to find uh, some of my articles. Wonderful. Great. Thank you so much again. And uh, please stay on that topic. And with new findings, um, reach out to us as we will as well. And then we'll talk about more um, as the technology advances and your, your studies advance as well and show us what relationship we need with it. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll do. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Dr. Sterling. Take care. Bye-bye. That website at the University of Utah is PSYCH for Psych utah.edu David Strayer's work on neuroscience Your Brain on Nature How Our Environment Becomes Us That was our topic in this hour of an organic conversation I'm Helge Helberg and we're staying with the topic of nature in this case on our plates the consumer update on what to buy right now how to store it and what to do with it when it comes to organic produce fruits and vegetables Here is the update from the produce doc, What's in Season? And on the phone with me, I hope, as always, is the voice of the San Francisco produce doc, Mr. Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. Earl, are you with us? Yeah, absolutely. Not to be denied. Nice. No. Here I am. Uh, welcome. How are you doing? You know, quite well. This um, season is, I'm very excited to see how, how the season keeps on developing because it's coming off the, at least in California, the wettest, wettest season in, I don't know, maybe ever. So years and years really and years, seeing, years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're really uh, looking forward to seeing the season uh, develop and uh, move on and it's a little early to tell yet but um, yeah, it's very exciting cool cool that you answer how are you doing with how the season is doing but I guess <laughs> I, that is the same um, well you know, <laughs> it, you know that's, that's, that is so, because it is so true uh, I am this is my passion and then and um I'm, I'm linked right into of it. Of course. Uh, yeah. So last week, you were so kind to give us an update on the crazy weather and the impact of rain. Prices rocket high three times as much for a head of lettuce. Uh, what are we talking about this week? And is that as affected by the rain or not? Well, I thought I'd, I, I, since we're still in flux and the season is just on its threshold developing, I want to talk about something that's around now all year. Oh. And that's kiwi. And it's something that people can kind of forget about. But I, I'm pretty sure, well, I know that it's gotten incredibly more popular in the last 10, 15 years since it's been um, introduced from New Zealand, where where originated in China. But um, New Zealand's really the one that brought it on the map. And now California, I think, is the second largest producer of, of kiwi on the, uh, on the planet. And 
where we are in the season is the very end of the California crop. And not unlike apples, kiwi go into storage because they're harvested in the fall. Huh. In um, well, they can they can start as early as uh, September, October. Generally, we start getting into them in November, and they go into storage uh, at the last of November, and you start pulling them out like apples out of storage. And that season, it, it is really so sub complemented by the product that comes out of the southern hemisphere, out of New Zealand, because as California runs out, we have the product mm. just beginning to ship. Also, and that, we're going to see that probably in the beginning of, I don't know, May or June. Uh-huh. Also um, like apples, right? I mean, this is almost an identical crop, sounds like then. It really is. It really is. The big difference that we see as that crosses over from the old crop of California to a new crop from New Zealand is the old crop of California is still far superior because it, it's got a huge amount of sugar. And the new crop coming out of New Zealand, generally the first shipment is doesn't have as much sugar mm-hmm. as you would want. So we very seldom uh, pick up the first shipment from New Zealand. And we, if the season allows us, if there's enough production, we, we carry over the last part, and that's what we're going to do this year. Sure. Interesting that kiwi, it's such a soft fruit, relatively, not when it maybe when it's still not ripe, but as a mature fruit, it's much softer than an apple. I didn't oh, think yeah. you could store them as well, though it was even storable at all, compared to an apple, which is you know solid like a pear, but kiwi seems so much more fragile. Yeah, I know what you mean, especially as it ripens. Of course, yes. it's very much like a berry. You know, they store very, very well when they're picked with maturity with high sugar mm-hmm. because the high sugar allows them to really get that temperature way down there. You can go all the way to 30, 29 degrees with a high sugar piece of fruit. It will not freeze. So what I love about them is they're incredibly high in vitamin C, and it's such a great thing to have in the winter, and they're so easy to eat. And there's a new thing going on, and some of us may have, been exposed to it. That's a golden kiwi piece of fruit. Have I've seen, seen them. That? Yeah, I've seen them. And I, yeah, tell us more about it. Well, you know, it's become, it's very popular. It's a little sweeter. It's a little less acid. Um, mm-hmm. And people are intrigued by it. Uh, the color is kind of a light orange and it's got less fuzz. Many people have gotten to e- eating the entire piece of fruit. Oh, with the skin. With the skin. Huh. And I, Most people are saying that in years to come, that's going to be the predominant piece of fruit that's around. Oh, fascinating. Well, the the other one, the green fuzzy one, is that basically all the same, the same variety? Or are there subtle differences in varieties and we just don't know about them? That's a darn good question. I don't have the answer to that. I'm not sure. I think it may be a subtle different variety because it is the, the, the... the exterior skin is different. The the flavor is a little different. I think it's just another variety, perhaps like another variety. Oh yeah, no, I don't. I don't mean the gold one. I'm saying the green ones that you get. Oh. Are those pretty much all the same, or are there different varieties within the green community that that we might find in the store? Because I'm ah. asking. I had a kiwi, very small piece of fruit, maybe a th- clearly a third less than an average New Zealand kiwi. It was local. It was from California. I don't remember the farm. And it almost had like melon or pear scent to it. It, it was hands down one of the most delicious kiwi I've ever had. It was so floral and tropical. It was amazing. There was a whole new dimension to the kiwi flavor itself. And I, I wasn't sure if that was just luck or if that was a different variety. Well, you know, there, there could very well be varieties, but, uh, you know, it's something that doesn't get distinguished at all uh-huh. uh, on our end and from the growers. They don't... Um, yeah, it's just called uh, kiwi, right? Yeah, but not unlike uh, blueberries, used to be just considered blueberries, but now they're very much being distinguished by mm-hmm. different varieties, too. The, I wonder also if it has anything to do with pollination, if it's, if it's around... Um, a melon field, if you will. They could take uh-huh. on flavors of that. Also, as it ripens, yeah, and our taste buds, as you know, what we've been eating, how we're dieting, uh, can really affect 
the chemistry in our mouth. Oh, and, interesting. Mm -hmm. And how we understand the flavors. I am doing uh, a no sugar year, which is wonderful and really not easy. But now, now I found my groove. Really trying right. to avoid all sugars, all added sugars. Yeah, well, phenomenal. Yeah, that that can be difficult. But and yeah, as you're probably doing, you're probably supplementing it with natural sugars of. Yeah, exactly. Just fruits yeah. in their natural form, exactly. And so yeah. everything tastes a little bit more intense. But I, I would say that kiwi was just, and I think you had delivered that um, to a, a health food store, Good Earth in Mill Valley. So it was a was particularly small, small pieces of fruit, but uh, incredible, which is something you always say in, in, the, in the context of high prices. Smaller pieces of produce usually are less expensive, but by no means less flavorful, right? Uh, oh, this is so, so true. I tell you, I find, I find that to be true in apples. Uh, I found it to be true, of course, in, in berries can be in stone fruit, you know, like in tomatoes, certainly the small ones can be outstanding. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting in that way. One thing I want to tell you is that the season this year is a very abundant. So I think uh, you're going to see a lot of good pricing. And abundance because they're not affected by the rain of the winter because they were all harvested and put in storage in November or December, right? Correct. Yeah, and we nice. have a very nice, uh, uh, you know, very nice fall yes. out here. And um, Great. Yeah, the crop just happen to be very strong and um kiwi and, you know, kiwis kiwis grow all over the place too sure nice you know if the head of lettuce is three times the normal price <laughs> leave it and there's a lot of kiwi you can get for seven dollars and yeah. that is maybe a good alternative for you know a good week of pumping up with vitamin c nice yeah lovely and, you know you, you <laughs> use this time to um Take take advantages. Look for advantages in different places. Yeah, yeah. With that five dollar lettuce, maybe that's not where you want to go. But you can definitely get a good bargain on kiwis and uh, certain pieces of citrus too. Nice. Can you? Uh, we are almost out of time, but can you store kiwis on your counter, or would you put in the fridge since they do come from controlled atmosphere storage right now? If you're going to eat it right away, of course you can leave it on the counter. But if you're going to store it any more than a than a day, you keep in your refrigerator. Great. Wonderful. Kiwi, it's where it's at. Thank you so much. Yes. And look for the golden kiwi. Wow. I can't wait yes. to find one of Check those. Check that out. Nice. And if you are uh, you know, got the inclination, pop the whole thing in your mouth and love to hear how you feel about that. <laughs> okay. We'll talk about that <laughs> next week then. Thank you yes. so much, Earl. We'll have you back soon. Excellent. Good Thank work. You. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Wow, kiwi, wonderful. Love kiwi and lots of vitamin C as we're coming out of the winter. A good little boost for the spring for you. That's Earl Herrick, earlsorganic.com, the website with produce tips, what to do, how to choose, how to store, and how to turn it into a meal, earlsorganic.com. And um, this is an organic conversation, your brain on nature, your brain with kiwi. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks so much for listening. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. For more episodes and our podcasts, go to anorganicconversation.com. And of course, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. Our Twitter handle is TalkOrganic. I am Helge Helberg, host and executive producer of An Organic Conversation. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>